Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 23 through 34 and looking at the power of the servant. The power of the servant. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read, beginning in verse 23. And there was in their their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee? Thou Jesus of Nazareth, art thou come to destroy us? I know thee that thou art the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And they were all amazed, insomuch as they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. And when he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them, and even at even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and they that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And I trust God will speak to our hearts uh, through his word this morning. Now, when Jesus appeared on the scene preaching and teaching, uh, he caused quite a stir. Uh, When the people heard his words, they saw his works, uh, they were left astonished. That's one of the words used in verse 22. And then we find they were amazed in verse 27. When they heard him speak, they said, Never man spake this like this. When they saw him work, they said, We never saw it on this fashion. Jesus left them dumbfounded by his power and by his teaching. Now, in our last study, uh, we went with Jesus to the synagogue on the Sabbath morning, and while he was there, he taught the people with power and authority. Jesus was, or the Jews were uh, uh, amazed at his preaching. As we continue to follow the Lord through the events on one Sabbath day, we're going to witness some areas where Jesus was truly amazing. Now, in our text today, Jesus is still in the synagogue. He's teaching the word of God, and he's doing it in power. The people are sitting there, kind of with their mouths hanging open, in amazement at the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Jesus in the synagogue, consider the rest of the events that occurred that day, I want us to just kind of see uh, the power of Jesus the servant. 
in verses 21 through 22, uh, it allows us to examine the preaching of uh, the amazing servant. And uh, this morning we want to look at the power of the servant. Now we notice, first of all, he had power over demons. We saw this in verses 23 through 28 as we just read. Uh, As Jesus preaches, he's interrupted by a demon-possessed man. Uh, The demon used the man's vocal cords. Uh, They were causing him to scream. The demon declares his awareness of just who Jesus is. Uh, The demon declares Jesus to be the Messiah. Uh, And Jesus rebukes the demon and frees this possessed man from that demon's grip. Now that's an amazing thing to have to have witnessed, I'm sure, for the people there. And we probably would never uh, be able to see that again, of course, because we don't have the Lord Jesus here. Uh, But uh, I think this scene can teach us some lessons. What is a demon? Well, liberal theologians would say that people in the Bible times were unsophisticated. Uh, They uh, they thought that people had mental problems. Uh, Those were the demon-possessed people, those who had mental problems. Well, they would go on to say that Jesus knew better, but he kind of played along with their superstitions and their beliefs, and that would make Jesus and the writers of the Gospels liars. Now, we don't talk about demons too much, uh, but the Bible speaks of them. It speaks of them here in our text. And I believe on one hand, we can give the devil and his demons maybe too much credit for the evil in this world. Uh, Some years ago, there was a television program that popularized this, this phrase, the devil made me do it. Uh, some of you older folks would not remember that if you saw that. If you didn't, you didn't miss anything, okay? But uh, this has become the ex- excuse for uh, many not to take appropriate blame for their own sinful ways. It doesn't uh, uh, allow people to take blame for their pride. It doesn't allow for people to take blame for their own fleshly lusts. Now don't get me wrong, I believe that demons are real. I believe they can influence, uh, they have an influence in our world today, but we cannot blame them for everything that goes wrong or because uh, we may be tempted from uh, uh, to sin against God. You can't just blame the devil on it. There's the world, the, sin, uh, the, the flesh, and the devil. There's three aspects, okay, that cause us to sin. We can't put all the blame on Satan and his demons. But what is a demon? Well, the Bible teaches us something about them. In reality, the Bible teaches us about demons and devils or evil spirits. I want you to notice some things that it teaches us. It teaches us about the origin of demons. Uh, Demons are angels which followed Satan in his rebellion. Uh, Back in Isaiah chapter 14, it tells us about Satan and uh, or Lucifer's fall. And there are those who rebelled with him. Uh, Matthew twenty five forty one says, Then shall he say unto them, also unto them, on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed into an everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. 
So there were those who were uh, not only uh, uh, the devil, but there were those who followed him in his rebellion. You find in Revelation chapters chapter 12, verse 7 through 9, it says, And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So the Bible tells us we believe there is a devil. He's not just a made-up fiction cartoon with, a, uh, with horns and a fork, pitchfork in his hand. He's real. The Bible tells us about him. So are his demons, nor his angels. So that's the origin of demons. Secondly, you have the nature of demons. They're spirit creatures. They do not have bodies. Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 says, When even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all the sick. So they had intelligence. They had a personality. They had great strength. They were unclean. They were wicked. They were evil. That's the nature of demons. And so then we come to the activity of demons. Well, I think... It's very clear that the devil uh, has his so-called angels uh, or demons to help him influence this evil world. I don't know that the devil has much to do with me. I'm not very important. But maybe he assigned one of his demons to influence me or to, to, to attack me. Now, uh, he, the demons will oppress. They will hurt people. They will even possess some people. But maybe, make this clear, those demons possess the power to inhabit bodies of unsaved people, not saved people. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. When we get saved, we have the Spirit of God living within us. And the demons and the Spirit of God can't live together. Demons possess people in order to use their physical bodies to carry out the will of the people or the devil. But I don't believe that saved, genuinely, truly saved people can be possessed. Now they can be influenced, but not possessed. Demons do not possess blood-bought, saved children of God because when we're saved again, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit and the evil spirit cannot dwell in us at the same time. Now maybe you've heard of a situation where it was thought that a Christian was demon-possessed. Well, just because a person says they're a Christian does not necessarily mean they are. You can say you've been a Christian all your life. You say, well, I was born into a Christian family. I'm, I've gone to a Bible-believing church all my life. That doesn't make you a Christian. Doesn't make it so. If a person who claims to be a Christian is thought to be demon-possessed, then I would have great doubt whether they were genuinely saved. Now that is not to say that disobedient, backslidden, child, children of God cannot be influenced by Satan and demons, but a truly born-again child of God cannot be possessed by a demon. If you're here this morning and your faith is based upon your parents' salvation, 
or an experience that you had because you've been a churchgoer all your life, you do not get saved by going to church. You don't get saved by giving an offering. You don't get saved because of someone else in your family. You're saved by trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross and placing your faith in Him and Him alone. And when you do that, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in you. There's no room for a demon. Demon possession was something that Jesus encountered on a regular basis during His earthly ministry. It may be that Satan was actively trying to disrupt that what Jesus was doing and that demonic activity uh, was more prominent than it is now. The truth is, demonic activity is very prevalent today. I have no doubt that much of the evil in this world is perpetuated by people who are possessed or impressed or controlled even by the devil. We also need to note that demon, uh, both rec- uh, the demon both recognized Jesus. They recognized his authority to deal with the demons. We saw that in verse 24. The demons know Jesus. They know his power and they fear him. James chapter 2 verse 19 says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. I thought it was interesting What one commentator noted that that was a demon that called the Lord Jesus of Nazareth. Because I believe this was the first time that Jesus had been named Jesus of Nazareth. And the demon did it in in the way that Satan and his hosts always operate, so as to cast doubt about the truth and the sincerity of the Lord Jesus. The demon was uh, attempting to prejudice the people against Christ and have them look on him as a deceiver because everyone knew the Messiah must be of Bethlehem and no good thing was expected out of Nazareth. And that is the way Satan and his demons work. That's how they work today. They will always try to cast doubt on the things of God and the importance of trusting Christ to be saved. And yet the demon was also honest in speaking of Jesus as the Holy One of God. You know, it's uh, sad, but often, how often demons have more respect for the Lord Jesus Christ than lost people do. Uh, Billions of people around the world refuse to acknowledge the existence of the Lord, and they refuse to bow to His power. Uh, They have less sense than the devil. Uh, You know, Jesus rebuked the devil and he said, Hold thy peace and come out of him. Verse 25. That phrase, hold thy peace, that literally means be muzzled. Jesus told the demon to shut up and to vacate the premises. Uh, He said it much nicer than that, didn't he? (laughs) But the demon immediately obeyed the Lord's command. And he left the body of that poor possessed man. Now why did Jesus cast out the demon when the demon was actually telling the truth about Jesus? Jesus did not want to be identified with the devil, but with the Heavenly Father. I think it's very important that we be careful who we're identified with. 
He refused to receive the testimony of the demons. Jesus did not come to save fallen angels. He came to save fallen people. He came to save sinners. What gives him the most glory is a redeemed sinner testifying to the power and his identity. You see, when people witnessed the power of Jesus to cast out this demon, they were left amazed. So it says in verse 27, they were all amazed. That word amazed, again, means to astonish, to frighten even, uh, to render motionless. They were riveted in their places when they saw Jesus do this. They could not move. I get the idea that this was not the first time this demon-possessed fellow showed up at the synagogue. And many times he perhaps had disrupted the service that was going on there. But this was the first time that anyone had seen someone with authority take care of this devil and deliver someone from the Satan's grip. Now, when we saw what Jesus could, when they saw what Jesus could do, they began to spread the word around uh, the countryside about him. Verse twenty-eight. Neighbors began to tell neighbors, and before long, everyone in the area had heard about the Lord Jesus and what he could do. Now, here's an important principle. Actually, there's a couple of important principles. Number one, there is no hopeless case with Jesus. Regardless of how low into sin a person has fallen, regardless of how firm a grip Satan may have on them, regardless of the power of their addictions or the vileness of their sins, there is power in Jesus to save them and to deliver them from the grip of sin and Satan. That person the world views as beyond saving is the very person he came to save. And if you look at the Bible, you'll see case after case that appears hopeless. And in every case, Jesus is able to save that soul and change that life. You think of Saul of Tarsus. He hated the Lord Jesus. He did everything in his power to destroy Christians and the gospel. God saved Paul by his grace and changed his life. And he became Paul the Apostle. The man who so violently had opposed Jesus became one of the mightiest weapons in the Lord's arsenal in those days. And as we continue to move through the verses of Mark, we're going to witness person after person that seems to be hopeless. We're going to watch Jesus save them and change them. So never give up. You say, I know someone I've been witnessing to them for years and they just don't seem like they're going to change. They're so wicked and they stay in their sin, but... God is able. The Lord Jesus is able to save them. Don't give up. Jesus has the power to save people who will repent of their sins and believe the gospel. Secondly, in Jesus' day, the people weren't just excited about the synagogue. They always... uh, It was always the same dull, boring waste of time And when Jesus came and worked in power, the people left that synagogue that day and they were excited about what they'd heard and seen. They spread the word. Multitudes responded. Tells us down in verse 33 and 34. Do you ever wonder why Christianity uh, takes a, uh, a bad rap, so to speak? I know that's an old word. 
but uh, a bad rap from the world. Uh, they're sick to death of legalism and ritualism and hypocrisy. I don't go to church because that's where all the hypocrites are. You know, that's excuse. They watch many of us in our lives and they see that, you know, there's no difference between us and them. They hear us preach and they believe that we're out of touch. We speak a different language. We preach a strange message. We do weird things. You know, like singing hymns. That's weird. We come to to church and we sit here and we listen to a preacher preach the word of God. That's just, you know, that's just not something you do. You have to go to, if you're going to go to church, you got to listen to about 45 minutes to an hour of rock music and then you can hear a sermon, a little devotional maybe. But we center on the word of God, the preaching of God's word. We speak a different language. We preach a strange message. And from their perspective, and what the world is looking for is not business as usual from the church. What the world is looking for is the power of God. You know, when a church becomes a place where the Spirit of God is moving in power, doing unusual things and changing lives for the glory of God, I think that's going to reach some people. When we preach our message in the power of God, uh, people will respond. And as a church, we should, could do nothing better than get on our faces before God. Seek his presence and his power in these days. You know, we don't need a new Bible. We don't need a new style of music. We don't need drama and dance. We don't need activities and programs. We don't need small group meetings. We need the power of God and the presence of the Holy Ghost. I believe it was one famous preacher who was asked about his popularity and his response was to say, I just get myself on fire and the people come and watch me burn. Well, that'll work in the church these days as well. If we'd ever get on fire, the world would come and watch us burn. One night a church did catch fire. And it was burned to the ground. As the pastor watched it burn, he noticed a man standing in the crowd watching the church burning. The pastor recognized the man because he had invited him to church many, many times. And the man had never come. The pastor went to him and said, I invited you to this church many times. You never came. Why are you here tonight? The man said, well, I've never seen this church on fire before. There's a lot of truth in that, isn't it? Then we need to get on fire. And I'm not talking about some emotional uh, experience. I'm just saying get excited about the Word of God. And begin to live the Word of God in our lives. And, and people will see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. And they'll say, I want what you have. So he has power over demons. Secondly, he has power over disruptions. We see this in verses 29 through 31. The services are over in the synagogue. Jesus goes to the home of Peter and Andrew. And I don't know that they went for fried chicken or not, but he went to someone's house after the service. And we're going to gather for for some, some food after this service. 
It was customary back then to have a family meal. You know, Sunday dinner. Uh, used to be uh, roast beef and taters and, you know, vegetables and swaybach. Uh, you don't know what that is. That's German. But when they arrived at Peter's house, they found Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. Now, it doesn't appear that her fever was life-threatening, but it left her unable uh, to prepare the meal for the family. Instead of coming home to a feast, they came home to a woman with a fever. And they tell Jesus about this sickness, and he walks over and he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and she gets up and goes right to work getting the meal ready. Now this is an amazing scene. Uh, They have just left the synagogue. Jesus has claimed victory over the devil. Now he enters a home where he's faced with just a simple fever. But here's another situation that proves to be no problem for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to learn this from this, uh, this, this lesson from this. And that is, first of all, nothing is too hard for the Lord. If this passage teaches us anything, it teaches us that nothing is beyond the scope of His ability. There's no disruption too great. There's no problem too mundane for the Lord. You know, the Lord was able to uh, create a universe from nothing. He's able to speak the winds and the waves and, and calm them from the most violent storms. He was able to take five small uh, loaves of, of bread and two little fishes. Maybe they were sardines, I don't know. But they were two little fishes and he feeds thousands of people. He's able to speak the word and deliver a man from the grip of thousands of demons in Mark chapter 5. We'll get to that later. But he's able to do all these great things and even more. Nothing is too hard. Secondly, nothing is too mundane for Jesus. Jesus is able to meet the most uh, mundane of the needs as well. He created the universe from nothing. He put tax money in the mouth of a fish. He's able to calm the uh, stormy seas. He's able to speak peace to the hearts of people. He's able to multiply the loaves and the fishes and feed a multitude. He's able to take care of the smallest of sparrows. He's able to break the grip of Satan, deliver a demon-possessed man, and he's able to reach the heart of a lost sinner and save them by his grace. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is too mundane. But nothing is too large for the Lord to overcome. He's able to do great things. He's able to take care of little things. But nothing is too large that his power cannot overcome it. Job 42 verse 2 says, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Luke 1 and verse uh, 37 actually uh, should be for with God nothing shall be impossible. Matthew 19 verse 26 for with God nothing shall be impossible. Matthew 28 18 and Jesus came and spake unto them and saying all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now what kind of disruption do you need help with today? Do you have a situation in your life going on that needs to be handled? Bring it to the Lord Jesus. Do you have a sin that needs to be forgiven? Bring it to Jesus. Do you have problems that need to be solved? Bring it to Him.
Do you need a Savior who will love you and forgive you and save your soul? Bring it to Him. Whatever the need, whatever the situation, whatever the burden, bring it to the Lord Jesus. He can handle it and He can meet that need. Nothing is too big. Nothing is too small. He cares for you. And if you will give Him the opportunity, He will display His great power in your life. You know, life is full of disruptions, isn't it? But it's a comfort to know that our God can handle them all. You say, something goes wrong in your life, maybe something breaks down in your work, or something, uh, uh, you know, becomes a mess, and you say, I didn't need that today. Well, God is able to give us what's necessary to handle these situations. Our duty is to bring them to Him. And place them in his hands. And when we do that, they are good as handled. So we find here his power over demons. We find his power over disruptions. And then thirdly, his power over diseases. Found this in verses 32 through 34. Jesus and his four new recruits spend the afternoon relaxing. And when the sun goes down, the people began to show up. Now the Jews honored the Sabbath day from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And when Sabbath was over, they said, well, now we can go to Jesus for healing. And the people came that evening, and they were suffering from every imaginable disease and affliction. Uh, There were people in that crowd suffering from sickness and others who were suffering from Satan. Some were diseased, some were were demon-possessed. But none of them posed a problem for the Lord Jesus. Whether it was a cold or it was cancer, whether it was a hemorrhage or hiccups, deadly disease or demon possession, Jesus was able to heal every affliction that came that way, his way. Some come under their own power. Others had to be carried. It says there the word brought in verse 32 means to carry as a burden. Regardless of how they got there, Jesus received them and he helped them all. These people came that evening and they were from all classes of life. The rich and the poor, the influential and the anonymous, uh, the religious and the rank sinner came and Jesus received them all and turned none away. He reached out to them in his compassion and he delivered them from all their ailments. I say again that Jesus has the power over disease. He can heal anyone he wants to heal. But it isn't always his will to heal. Some people tell us that Jesus promises to heal all of his children. Uh, They believe that there is a physical healing in the atonement. Uh, They use Isaiah 53 and verse 5, which says, With his stripes we are healed. Now we need to understand that not a drop of blood was shed on the cross for our physical healing. When Jesus died, he died for your sins and my sins. Sure, there's healing at the end of the road. When we're taken home to heaven, but in this world, there will be disease and there will be physical problems. If it's always God's will to heal, then why was Epaphroditus at the very point of death in Philippians chapter 2 Verses 25 through 30. Epaphroditus was a servant who worked himself to death almost. 
And if it was God's will to heal him, why didn't he heal him? If it's always God's will to heal, then why did not, uh, why was uh, Trophimus not healed by Paul in 2 Timothy 4.20? What about the physical infirmities of the Apostle Paul himself? If it is not God's will as these so-called faith healers advocate, for every Christian to be physically sick or infirm, then why did not God heal the great Apostle Paul? By the way, why aren't these faith healers spending time in the hospitals instead of drawing great crowds of people to put on a show? No, it's not always God's will to heal. Sometimes he uses sickness in our lives as a chastisement for sin. Sometimes he uses sickness as a way to get glory to his name. Sometimes, if it's God's will, it is God's will to use sickness as a doorway to lead us from the world, this world, into His presence. Sometimes, He uses it to get our attention. He can heal, but it's not always His will to heal in this world. Now, all of God's children receive healing when they get home. While our Lord has the power to heal, He does not always use the power to heal everyone we pray for. We often pray for those who are sick and those who have had surgeries and those who have, uh, are struggling with some, something, and we trust God he will do a work. But we got to know that it may or may not be in his will. I usually pray, Lord, if it be your will, please heal so-and-so. Some people would say that kind of pray, praying demonstrates a lack of faith. I say that kind of praying honors God. It trusts him to do the right thing and believes in him in spite of the outcome. Now we understand that God does not give the physical healing to everyone who calls on him for healing. I can say with all confidence that every person who asks him to heal them of an ultimate disease will never be turned, turned away uh, disappointed. Jesus can heal these bodies. That's no problem for him, but... He specializes in taking souls that have been afflicted with the disease of sin and making them whole. You see, man's greatest need today is not for the healing of the body. Oh, we don't like the pain. We don't like the misery. We don't like the sickness. But that's not our greatest need. Man's greatest need is for the healing of the soul. Because that's our real problem. Man is a sinner by birth. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their tongues. Man is doomed to hell by his sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we have only one hope, and his name is Jesus. We sang about him this morning. The name of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there, any, is there salvation in any other, for there is no, none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved.
And so if a sin-sick soul will turn to Jesus by faith, it will instantly, perfectly, permanently heal them. He'll save their soul and make them a new creature. He'll give them a brand new life. He'll adopt them into his family and make him a child of God. And if you're lost today, you're in worse shape than any person with terminal cancer. You're in worse shape than any person who has a broken leg. You're in worse condition than any person with any physical disease in the history of the world. You're the soul sick and you are headed for hell. You need to be saved. And if you come to Jesus, he will heal you today. He will make you whole. Let me also mention the fact that not everyone who came to Jesus this afternoon here in the scripture was healed or was not saved. Some were there to see what they could get from Jesus. And no doubt some believed unto salvation, but there are others that were just using him. And the same is true in our day. Most people are content to take his blessings while they ignore him. They breathe in air. That's his air. They they eat his food. They drink his water. They live in his world. But they don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Far too many people are simply looking for a spare tire. They throw God in the trunk of their life until they have a flat, and then they drag him out and use him until things get better. And then they hide him again. God does not exist just so we can, he can be used by needy people. He is to be loved. He's to be worshipped. He's to be served, regardless of what life brings our way. You know, when the people saw Jesus casting out the demons and healing diseases, they were amazed by his power. What we need to understand this morning is this. He still has the same power today. He can deliver you from the grip of the devil. He can handle all the disruptions in your life. And he can cure the diseases that ail you. Whatever has you in its grip today is no match for the Lord Jesus. If you want to be free, you come to him. If you need healing, you need to come to him. If you need to be saved, you need to come to him. If he's spoken to your heart and reminded you of where you need to be, you need to come to him. Have you just been using God as a spare tire? Maybe you need to get on fire for him. You need to be forgiven. You need to be saved. Then listen to the Lord Jesus Christ and come to him this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you.